stars have once again aligned, and what an age-old cult had failed to do, a band of innocent authors has accomplished. After vigintillions of years, the flash fiction contest is loose again and ravening with delight. Each week, batches of stories will be released into gladiatorial pits to fight for supremacy. The floor will be churned to mud with the blood of the fallen until the mightiest stories remain for your delight and dread. The fourth incarnation of the Escape Artist's Flash Fiction Contest as led by Pseudopod is here. Submissions are closed and the carnage begins. Visit forum.escapeartists.net and come participate in voting for stories. They're published on a members-only section of the forum, so you must be a forum member to participate. It's easy to become a member. Drop by forum.escapeartists.net, register, and join us. And may the most horrific win. Podcastle, episode 386, for October 20, 2015. Flash Fiction Extravaganza, Ghostly Interludes. Rated R for death, drug use, and, well, you know, ghosts. Hello there. It's your friends from Podcastle, leading you down some ghostly paths with some very varied ghosts. But before we get loaded for a ghost, a few announcements. This year's call for Artemis Rising was staggeringly successful. We received a tremendous number of submissions. Many thanks to everyone who submitted. The quantity and quality of the stories has been extraordinary. In order to give proper attention to all the submissions we've received, we'll be temporarily closed to all new submissions beginning November 1, 2015. That's just in about two weeks, people. We expect to reopen in January 2016. Thanks for your patience. We look forward to reading your stories. And some very exciting news... As of October 2015, Podcastle will be paying narrators. This is something we've wanted to do for a long time. All of us at Escape Artists, actually. And we're finally in a position to be able to do so. The contracts are very nearly complete, and once they are, we'll be good to go. And that's not all. The other Escape Artists casts are likely to follow next year. So if you've ever thought of narrating for us, please let us know. Because now we can pay you. Full details are coming soon, and we'll put something up on the website when we have those details. And now folks, let's move on. It's another flash extravaganza with, and you may have picked up on this by now, a decidedly ghostly theme. Three different stories, three different ghosts. We kick things off with The Spirit of Pine Top Inn by Renee Carter Hall. First appeared in her book Wishing Season, a collection of holiday-themed short stories that was released in 2014. The story is also available from Quarter Reads. Renee works as a medical transcriptionist by day, and as a writer, well, all the time. Her short fiction has appeared in various print, online and audio publications including Strange Horizons, Daily Science Fiction and Black Static. Her latest book, Huntress, is a coming-of-age tribal fantasy for teens and adults set in a world of anthropomorphic lions. For more about that and her other work, check out her website at ReneeCarterHall.com The narrator is Folly Blaine. Folly lives in the Pacific Northwest, where she narrates short fiction and audiobooks. 
For two years, she served as the podcast manager at Everyday Fiction and then went on to narrate work for Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Wiley Writers and Stories in Books 1 and 2 of the Apocalypse Triptych edited by John Joseph Adams and Hugh Howey. Folly attended the Clarion West Writers' Workshop in 2014 and when she's not engaged in audio projects, writes her own speculative fiction. To learn more, go to follyblaine.com. Links, as always, are in the show notes. But now, it's time to interview the job applicants. Let's hope we get a good batch. And in between, enjoy the story. The Spirit of Pine Top Inn by Renee Carter Hall The first ghost showed up right on time, striding into the Pine Top Inn's front parlor so regally that the proprietors, Emma and Tom, expected a flourish of trumpets to accompany his entrance. The ghost bowed to Tom and kissed Emma's hand. Sir Edward Blackthorn IV, at your service, my lord, my lady. He straightened and handed Tom a thick, leather-bound book. My references, dating all the way back to 1784. I trust you will find everything in order. Tom squinted at the faded calligraphy. Impressive. Let's go back into the office, Emma suggested, and Tom and Sir Edward followed. The ghost was so portly in his velvet and furs, so polished and buffed and bejeweled, that it was hard to think of him as ethereal. Emma started to offer him something to drink, but stopped just in time. After hearing from spectral staffing, hauntings for hire, she'd spent some time browsing ghost etiquette sites. She would have thought that offering food or drink would have been a compliment. Hey, you look so good I forgot you were dead. But apparently such an offer was an unpleasant reminder of corporeal pleasures lost. Better to get down to business, then. Your resume mentions skills in classical and traditional hauntings. Ah, yes. I manifest in oil paintings, tapestries, and mirrors, move books around in the library, all sorts of things in that line. I also blow a hunting horn on fine autumn mornings. It's particularly stirring. Oh, I'm sure. Emma glanced at Tom. They didn't have a library, unless you counted the shelf of take-one-leave-one paperbacks, and the Pine Top Inn's decor was classic but simple. Sir Edward, sitting in their cluttered office, looked like a bronze candelabra surrounded by jar candles. Well, Tom rose to shake Sir Edward's hand, then put his hands awkwardly in his pockets once he realized the faux pas. Well, Keep your resume on file and give you a call if something opens up. After Sir Edward left, Tom sank back into his chair. If we had an English manor, he'd be perfect. For five rooms, it's a bit of overkill. He looked at Emma. Are you sure about all this? Emma sighed. We've tried everything else. She counted them off on her fingers. The wine tastings, the spa weekends, the online coupon, the two-for-one deal. Another year like the last one, and we'll never get out of the red. But a ghost? People will come from all over to stay someplace haunted. From across the country, even, if it's good enough. We'll get listed on all the haunted hotel websites, booked up every Halloween. We can really play it up. It'll be a whole new angle for us. So who's next? The second applicant was a weather-beaten sailor in a yellow slicker, carrying a rusted lantern whose handle squeaked with every step. Water dripped constantly from his hat and coat, hissing into fog when it hit the hardwood floors. His bearded face was deeply lined, his eyes wide and staring, and he reeked of salt and dead fish. Tom tried to mouth-breathe inconspicuously. It says here that you've been through more than 50 hurricanes. That must be some kind of record. The sailor grunted. Worst was the storm of 32. Couldn't tell what was sea and what was rain. 
near a hundred ships lost that night to Davy Jones. Emma wasn't sure if she should express sympathy or amazement. So your haunting style is, a uh, nautically based? Aye. He held up the lantern, which flickered dramatically. When a storm's brewing, I walk the shore with my light, bringing the ships in. Hmm. Emma made a mental note to remind spectral staffing that their closest body of water was a creek that never got more than ankle deep even during the rainiest spells. We'll keep your information on file, Tom assured him. The sailor nodded and trudged to the door. He stopped then and turned. It's the smell, isn't it? Emma looked at Tom. Tom looked at Emma. A little, Tom said. The sailor nodded and left. Maybe a woman, Emma said. Tom shrugged. Ghost number three, therefore, was a thin, somber woman dressed all in black, with dark hair pulled back from a pale, pinched face. Tom looked over her resume. I see your previous employment was at a historical home in Pennsylvania. She nodded crisply. Budget cuts forced its closure, I'm afraid. I believe it's been turned into insurance offices. Dreadful. I can imagine, Emma said. I tried a few battlefields. My husband died in the war, you know, and I eternally wait for his return from the field. But the open air was too damp for my constitution. Emma nodded politely, though she couldn't help wondering how a spirit could feel cold or wet. And your haunting skills? Mostly I pace in the night. Sometimes I appear slowly at windows. If you prefer something more demonstrative, I can also weep quietly without being seen. Emma stood. Why don't we show you the rest of the inn? They toured the rooms. The widow didn't look as out of place as the others, and Emma found Tom reciprocating her hopeful glances. You keep a clean place, the widow said. I do appreciate a clean establishment. Oh, that's very important to us, Emma said. And this is the garden suite. Very popular with couples. The widow looked about the airy, elegant room, with its king-size four-poster feather bed and French doors leading out to a rose-trellised patio. She turned back to Emma. Married couples, I assume? I'm sorry? Popular with married couples, I hope. Oh, um, well, Emma looked helplessly at Tom. We don't really ask those sorts of questions, Tom jumped in. The widow pressed her lips into a thin, pale line. I see. She folded her hands and said nothing for the rest of the tour, then told them with frosty politeness that she did not feel her services would meet their needs. The room warmed ten degrees when she left. Emma rubbed her temples, and Tom put an arm around her shoulders. Well, she smelled like mothballs anyway. He got her an aspirin and a cup of coffee. What about a kid? Kids are the creepiest anyway. Everybody knows that. I'll call the agency. After apologizing profusely for the sailor, spectral staffing sent a two-for-one in the form of blonde twins boy and girl, about nine years old. The girl wore a ruffled white dress and had unnaturally ice-blue eyes. The boy, dressed in a white shirt and khaki shorts, never looked up from his handheld video game. So, Tom asked cheerily, what sorts of things do you guys like to do? The girl spoke in a flat voice. I like to stand at the foot of the bed and watch people sleep. Well, that sounds like fun. How about you, kiddo? 
The boy didn't look up. An electronic fanfare announced a new level of the game. He mostly hangs around and bangs on things sometimes, the girl said. He can roll a ball across the floor, if you want. What else do you like to do? Emma asked. The girl's gaze was unnerving. She seemed to keep her chin tucked down so as to be constantly looking up at them from the shadow of her brow. My hobby is disturbing jump rope rhymes. I've written six so far. It shouldn't be too hard to rhyme pine top if you want something custom. Tom grinned at Emma and leaned in close. See, he whispered, creepy. Can I talk to you a second? Tom followed Emma out of the office and into the kitchen. What's the problem? They're perfect. There's a fine line between picturesque and disturbing. We want people to still stay the night. If they didn't, we wouldn't have to wash the sheets, Tom smiled. Come on, they're just kids. Exactly how many horror movies have you seen again? Emma glanced at the block of kitchen knives, shivered, and folded her arms. If we hire them, I'm not sleeping here. So what do we do? Emma shrugged. Call the agency back. I guess. When she called back the next morning, though, the medium and spectral resources told them she was very sorry, but all their other spirits were currently under contract. Emma hung up and stared out the office window, looking out on the empty parking lot. The gray, drizzly sky matched her mood. This place had been their shared dream since before they were even married. They'd envisioned it over countless late-night burgers, planned it out on lazy Sunday afternoons, and finally made it happen with loan officers and real estate paperwork. And now it was slipping away. She figured they had enough to cover costs and loan payments for about two more months. And then... Tom came in carrying the toolbox. Any luck? That's all they had. I put us on the waiting list. She glanced at the tools inside. What's broken now? Faucet's still dripping in the garden suite. I'm gonna head down to the hardware store and get a new washer. Gotta keep things nice for all those heathen couples living in sin. He kissed her cheek. Don't worry. Something will turn up. I'll be back in 15. She watched him drive off, wishing she were more like him that she could just believe everything would be all right. She checked the travel websites to see if anyone had left any new reviews. She balanced their personal checkbook, wincing at the numbers. She put together a casserole for dinner and heated the oven. It was only when the rain picked up to a downpour that she looked startled at the clock and realized he'd been gone two hours. Emma sat in the heavy silence of the office, still wearing the dress she'd worn to the funeral that morning. Officially, the inn was closed, but the rooms were packed with family. She had no doubt most of them would still try to pay her when they left. Everyone else was asleep, the office dark except for the desk lamp. The voice came from beside her. I told you something would turn up. She looked up at him and found herself laughing even as her eyes filled. <laughs> I hate it when you're right. Tom managed a smile. I should warn you, I don't have much experience. I don't even have chains or a hunting horn or anything. She thought a moment, then handed him the toolbox. Go turn on the faucet in the garden suite. He gave her a mock salute with a wrench and headed out. Emma watched him go, then wiped her eyes and woke up the computer. Later, she'd have to redesign the website, create a new ad or two, and maybe sign up at some ghost hunter forums. For now, she logged into her email and wrote a message to Spectral Staffing to tell them the position had been filled.
you. Hell of a way to fill a position. I guess he'll just have to learn on the job, eh? Our second ghostly interlude is Wet by John Wiswell. It was first published in the first issue of Urban Fantasy magazine. John tries to be helpful to children lost in train stations. He's been published by Urban Fantasy magazine and Flash Fiction Online and has a story forthcoming at Fireside Fiction. John is currently working on novels about all the fun you should be having in the post-apocalypse. Feel free to message him if the dinosaurs and giant robots in yours aren't behaving properly. He can be found on Twitter at Wiswell and on his blog. Check the show notes for details. Reading the story for you with expert precision is Nathaniel Lee. Nathaniel lives with his family in South Carolina. His work as an author has appeared in dozens of venues online and off, including several times previously here on Podcastle. He serves as the editor of the Drabblecast and assistant editor at Escape Pod. But now, there's something odd about that little girl in the raincoat? What it is, I'm not sure, but look, go talk to her if you can get her attention, and enjoy the story. Wet by John Wiswell You remember little girls in raincoats in the middle of Phoenix summers. This one was hyperventilating into the shiny yellow hood of her coat and flailing her arms as though trying to swim through the sweltering heat beneath the train platform. It was wretched and immediately recognizable as ghost behavior. Ghosts have the knack for forgetting they don't need to do things like hyperventilate or file taxes or piss themselves in fear, and if you ever have an inexplicable ammonia smell in your house, it's probably because some poor fool is haunting your bathroom. The few parapsychologists I've known have a hell of a time convincing ghosts to give up feudal terrors like that. Hmm, I don't bother convincing. I have time. If mortals are good for anything, it's patience. No one else stopped to help her because a ghost hyperventilating sounds like guar, like guar on a really off night. I like the sounds of all satirical metal, so I climbed under the platform to prod her. The brat ignored me, managing to wrap the bottom of her coat around her face. Because she was intangible, I couldn't unwrap it for her, so I went on to my commute to the herd. On my lunch break, I picked up a few candy bars and an adult raincoat. None of those are flattering, especially when you have hips my size. Still, I wore the coat on my commute back home. Her private guar concert continued raging beneath the platform. She ignored me, which ghosts do, because ghosts know you're here about as well as you know they're here, or if that's too woo-woo for you about as much as a dog knows, it's got algebra homework. I had to call in sick for six consecutive days lying beneath the platform beside the girl before I got through to her. I didn't mind. Phoenix's Wi-Fi is improving, and as I said, immortals are either patient uh, or cryogenically frozen to alleviate the horrors of eternal sentience. It was on day six that I sat in a puddle from a leaking drainage pipe, and something about it got the kid to finally roll over, peeking out from under her shiny yellow hood and recognizing there was another person there who wasn't afraid of a raincoat. I was the picture of chill. After all, my raincoat protected me from the puddle. She didn't resume breathing normally because she didn't actually have lungs anymore, but she did stop thinking she was hyperventilating. Then I offered her the candy bars, which she didn't take, but she did appreciate. She took my tablet instead, haunting my browser and looking up the latest One Direction videos. I deleted my cache later. After that, she followed me to work. While she wouldn't eat the candy bars, she would levitate them, clutched together like a deck of fattening cards, perhaps waiting for me to want one. She followed me to a blood drive, to genetic testing, where they never figure anything out, but they're so excited over their confusion, and then to the set of a snuff film I've been tinkering with. On the one hand, I'm encouraging an industry, and on the other, I've gotten a couple of actors into very necessary therapy. The kid didn't so much as blink at anything, except when I washed my hands after the blood donation. She gave a mighty Dave Rocky shriek and fled through the walls at the sight of a running tap. On the commute home, she refused to ride over Salt River. I saw her grip the lapels of her raincoat before she vanished, and I didn't see her again until the next morning when I passed over the river again. She poofed into existence on the seat beside me, raincoat and candy bars intact, much to the dismay of the heavy-set banker who'd been trying to hit on me. Eh, it would never have worked out. He definitely didn't like Guar. 
She followed me to a hostage negotiation. Uh, this middle-aged man was driven to the edge by a cocktail of bad investments and a rude nephew and losing his wife to cervical cancer, and he was stunned to be offered two hostages in favor of the one girl he had at gunpoint. It's a great trick more immortals should play. I don't care about getting shot. Neither did my little raincoat buddy who took three to the chest and only registered that her butterfinger had been blown to smithereens. That was definitely the night we started bonding. While ghosts only think they sleep, she looked terribly cute in faux dreams. One night she slept possessing my underwear drawer. The next two nights she possessed a box of tissues, with the tissue uprooting and drifting to the floor for every different dream. She'd sleep in my bed if I kept the bathroom door closed. If I left it open when I showered, she'd run herself a block away and I'd need to bust out my raincoat to get her to calm down. And her freakouts always broke my plumbing. You've already figured it out. You're a smart person. You must be. You're listening to me and I don't have dumb audiences. I didn't want to figure it out, obvious as it was. A baby would spill its juice and my raincoat buddy would freak out, and even in an Arizona summer she couldn't completely avoid water. I tried staying in the apartment for days on end with her, but eventually a TV show would feature rain and she'd go haunting around the entire building, and my LCD set would drip like a gutter. She couldn't find peace, and yes, that's the point with ghosts, but it grates when you're coming to love someone. I wanted to keep her. You know, she started stealing candy bars for me. Always Butterfingers. I knew it was going on weeks beforehand, denying all the way because you don't live through the ages and still maintain interest in people without willful ignorance. We had our breakthrough on the night the apartment building collapsed. I went in because if there's a collapse, the fire department always digs me out at a maximum of 14 days. They're great people. There are people like them in every generation, which is why I keep coming back to civilization. She followed me into the auxiliary basement. My intrepid raincoat buddy possessed some rubble to let me get through and snag a pair of ten-year-old twins. I heard another voice, one that turned out to be only pipes bursting and squealing air, and went deeper. She went deeper with me. The water was trickling at first, only a little rivulet down one crack in the cement wall, and my raincoat buddy froze, staring at the leak. The longer she stared, the stronger the flow became. I got between her and the trickle, and it tapered. It was a sticky haunting, and my distraction only lasted so long as the water level kept rising, even with no source of flow. The kid was gasping, clutching at her throat, and screaming nonsense at the ceiling. Except, ghosts don't talk in nonsense, they talk in feelings, in a language that makes total sense somewhere else other than here. I know feelings. I'm told I don't have any left, but I sure know Daddy come back, and the knob is too slippery, and it's wet in here, it won't stop raining when I feel it sung by the dead. I'm never going to forget it. And I'm immortal. Never is atrociously real to me. Her fingers raked through the water without a splash, and even though she could float in any substance she wanted, she sank to the bottom. I drowned with her, unable to hug her shoulders, but giving her someone nearby. She wasn't alone. Firemen tried to rescue us to no avail for her intangibility. It was another week before they drained the basement and another two days of mildew smells before she could raise her head. Another four passed before she could be convinced she was capable of leaving the basement. As she never nest up to the surface, and we passed into daylight... I have never been so grateful for a rainless day in Arizona. Even then, drowning over and over in the dark with her, I considered not solving her problems. Ghosts are the best company for immortals. Better company than other immortals, because ghosts don't change. If they're stuck on you, they stay stuck. If they're affectionate, they stay affectionate. I could have had a raincoat buddy living in my tissue box until civilization went out of style. Ghosts don't get over things on their own. It's why they're stuck. They can be handy. They're very easy to abuse. Immortals do change, though, and I bought her some floaties. Two inflatable arm things and a red pool noodle shaped like a giant Twizzlers, and an inner tube she actually loved playing in, as long as it was stationed on my carpet. I began pushing the inner tube around my apartment, tricking her into thinking she was getting rides. She didn't know where she was at the end until the shower water sloshed against the drain and my water pressure stinks, and my shower drain has never once clogged, no matter what I've accidentally let drip down there, but within minutes of the kid trotting in, the entire bathroom was flooded to my knees. She scurried up to the sink, staring at me with the most hurt betrayal in her eyes, no understanding, weapons grade incomprehension. I stepped into the inner tube, hoisted it to my exceptionally broad hips, and switched on the sink. I've never heard Guar sound sincerely mournful before. I hope you never do. I'm patient, and I'd already drowned for her. 
I rode the inner tube up to the ceiling, all the while gesturing at her arm floaties and the buoyant Twizzler's noodle bobbing in front of her. She didn't believe she could be buoyant, but over the hours she couldn't ignore the toys, and she couldn't help haunting them. It was as illogical as an adult in a raincoat lying fearlessly beside her at a train station. It made no sense, and you could never hammer it into a reasoned argument, but you're smart, my friend. You know what mattered to her was how it felt. Go speak in feelings. And while I hope you never know what it feels like to simultaneously think you're drowning when no adult cares enough to come back for you, and to feel your body drawn up by inflatable floaties, and to bounce high against the ceiling as shower water that shouldn't ever be that high suddenly begins receding under you, well, I bet you can sympathize. That's all the feeling a living person needs. She was looking at the floaties, levitating them above the receding waterline, when she disappeared. No glance at me, no final sigh, no words. Not even a quick rendition of Road Behind. That was it. As quick as a mortal life being snuffed out, but rarer. And so it hurt more to get no goodbye. I bought a child's yellow raincoat to keep in my closet. I lie that it's hers when I tell this story to get me laid. She left nothing behind, which, to me, is quite the happy ending. Wherever people who die go is none of my business, but wherever it is, she took everything with her. John, the author, had this to say about wet. In our stories, ghosts are souls with unfinished business or traces of people that have forgotten how to be whole or energy without firm shape. In all their forms, ghosts are unfulfilled need. It's funny then that ghosts are creatures of horror. So often they haunt and harm us because we're too preoccupied to help, and it's too difficult to understand and sympathise. They are our own gravest needs. What kind of person could afford to be kind to the restless dead? Our final ghostly interlude is The Faces Between Us by Julie C. Day. It was first published in Interzone number 254. Julie's fiction has appeared in such magazines as Interzone, Electric Velocipede, and Acapella Zoo's Best Of. Born in Darlington, England, she has hazy memories of catching bees with jam-sweetened water, battery-powered fans from an indoor market, and a matching set of red vinyl armchairs where she hid from both the monsters and the television screen. Julie now lives in Western Massachusetts. She holds an MFA in creative writing from USM's Stone Coast program and a MS in microbiology from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Some of her favourite things include gummy candies, loose teas, standing desks and the inescapable sun of the Texas high desert. You can find Julie on Twitter at this Julie Day or through her website stillwingingit.com. Now this one is read to you by the California King, the Easter Werewolf, the incomparable, the magnificent Dave Thompson. I'm going to assume you folks know who this guy is. I mean, you've been here for a while, right? Well, look, if not, Dave is a former co-editor here at Podcastle. Five years! And an awesome author in his own right. Connect with him at his blog, cryolear.livejournal.com or on Twitter at Cryolear. Links will be in the show notes. But now, hey, you up for a garage sale? Let's take a drive. We need some pretty specific stuff. So climb in, put the top down, and enjoy the story. The Faces Between Us by Julie C. Day Drive long enough and you can find anything. Copper-eyed goddesses, gilded August afternoons, that arid stretch of Oregonian high desert in the southeastern corner of the state. Keep driving and you might catch something even more precious. A path through. Perhaps even a fairy tale ending. 
That's what Amber promised me during that long-ago summer. Didn't matter. Back then, the girl could have said almost anything, and I wouldn't have listened. Each Saturday morning, I drove, while Amber sat beside me, watching the miles slide by. Unwanted photographs and half-finished journals, scratched in dusty vinyl. Amber knew exactly what she wanted. Bessie Smith's Baby Won't You Please Come Home, or better yet, early Helen Hume and Anita O'Day before the heroine slide. Oregon's true spirit was Amber's term for all that transformed darkness, as though I had the slightest idea what she meant. That particular Saturday morning, Amber was already waiting on the front step when I pulled up in my truck. She stood pressed against the handrail, as far from her mother as physically possible. Amber's mom sat hunched in the sunshine, picking at the scabs that ran along her too thin arms. It was just Amber and Mrs. Destros. Amber's dad, Mr. Destros, had disappeared months ago, just before Amber and I had started going out. Didn't even bother to show me the way, was all Amber's mom would say on the subject. Somehow, I had the sense Amber knew exactly where her dad had landed. Hey, babe, I called from the open passenger window. Amber bolted down the stairs and across the weed-strewn yard, while Amber's mom stopped picking at her scabs long enough to grab a nearby metal can opener. Let's go, Amber said as she opened the passenger door. You're fucking late, she added. Sunstone, Amber's mom had started waving the can opener in our direction. Sunstone, I'm only trying to help. No one else gives a shit if you ever find the way. Not like me. Not like Dad pretended to. Brilliant parenting, Mom, Amber said through the open passenger window. Stellar, in fact. I said let's go, she repeated, turning in my direction. You look hot, you know. Combustible, I clarified as I put the truck into drive. And she really did. Back then, Amber smoldered with some strange amalgam of rage and pain. Flushed skin, scorched honey-dust eyes, oh, those breasts. Amber glared at me. What the hell are you smiling at? Nice try, but I'm not even close to angry, I said, steering the Ford away from the curb in her mom's strange obsession. Hopefully the gas would last. Amber's house was littered with can openers, easy-grip double wheels, standard butterflies, and those old-fashioned church keys that you punch down against the can. The same old parent shit, just with spirits and crumbly bits, Amber told me the one time I bothered to ask. What? They like to snort it. Or she does, I guess. Dad did, too, before he cut out. Snort what? Tuna fish and cling peaches? I ignored the dig about her missing dad. All sorts of stuff. Basically, whatever might push them through. Huh. After that, I left the topic well enough alone. Asking Amber too many questions was exactly the wrong sort of hassle. Like why she called me her little catalyst. Like why her mom kept talking about Oregon's golden realm. So where the fuck were you? Amber leaned forward and turned on the radio. I've been waiting for almost half an hour out there with her and her kitchen utensils. Still not angry. I rolled down my window and turned onto Highway 206 and the empty miles between Central Oregon's fadeaway towns. You get as mad as you want. Doesn't matter to me. No feelings, Larry, right? I'm your no-demands-no-expectations guy. Amber laughed. Flecks of smoke tingled gold shining from her eyes. God, I really love you. I'm glad, I said, refusing to parrot back her words. Girls and their feelings were dangerous. This girl, anyway, busily tracing her secret path. Home for both of us was on the wrong side of the Cascade Mountains. Our stretch of Oregon was full of barely-there towns, faded aluminum siding, and old men in lawn chairs, waiting for the reappearance of something even they suspected would never return. According to Amber, 
Towns like Wasco weren't just small-town Oregon. They were entry points into the true Oregon, Oregon's spirit realm. Maybe, and maybe not, but back then I could drive my truck forever if it meant I'd get laid. Amber, I tried, slipping one hand between her thighs. Shh, Larry, I'm concentrating. Amber swatted me away. The wind came through the open windows, whipping her hair into a shroud that covered her eyes and mouth. Come on, babe, I said. Sing me one of your old-timey songs. That got her attention. Some days Amber was just a girl with faded bruises and stories she didn't share. Other days, she sang. Those hot and crumbly ghosts, she claimed, required her music before they'd reveal the path's next turn. God, Amber could sing. Billie Holiday and Etta James took me that way, but Amber was the real thing. An old soul carrier, all ashy, with second-hand shame. It took two songs and thirty minutes to flush out our prey. This is it, Amber said, pointing to a trailer home set in a patch of hemlock and pine. There were no other people in sight, just a woman with stiff salt-and-pepper hair and a rough slash of lipstick. Hey, I said as I stepped down from the cab. The old lady nodded but remained silent. The two of us watched Amber pick through the tables of stuff. A box of Nancy Drew novels covered in tattered dust jackets. A crockpot with a brittle-looking cord. A broken wicker basket filled with buttons. Larry, Amber held up a dented metal cylinder about ten inches tall. Inside, I could see red and white drinking straws. You sure? Definitely. Eighteen dollars. The old lady frowned, daring either of us to argue. Give the lady your money, Larry, Amber said with a grin. Okay, I said, pretending to reach for my wallet. Then we were both sprinting for the truck. Amber still wrestling with the cab doors, I pulled away. Fast. That's what I remember about that Saturday in August. Red and white straws and the two of us laughing as we traveled west along Highway 206. Blue skies all the way. Forget souls or emotional vibrations. Truth is, ghosts are closer to ambered flies trapped in their own past. How much do they even notice the needs of the living? That's the question neither of us thought to ask. Amber assumed the ghosts were trying to help, and perhaps they were, but there are only so many ways to use those red and white drinking straws. No more Saturday morning drives. No more flushed cheeks while my hands slid down Amber's naked belly. Those first few weeks of August were all the same. Me standing in the gloom of Amber's basement, waiting impatiently as she worked on her homemade pixie sticks. A single light bulb hung overhead. A can opener rested on the edge of the table, ignored, at least for now. Amber had never explained its presence. She didn't need to. Even then, I knew it was Amber's metaphorical cyanide pill, her option of last resort. Get this right, and it'll be even better than my old-timey songs, Amber promised yet again. Her voice sounded grim. There were dark circles under her eyes and a tightness to her lips. The pink streaks in her dark hair, though, still made me think of melt-in-your-mouth spun sugar. Maybe the old lady's straws weren't the key after all. Amber grunted, but otherwise ignored my comment. I'd been sampling Amber's pixie sticks every night for the last week. No snorting. That was one of Amber's few rules. We swallowed it all down. The powdered nutmeg and straight-up sugar. The pulverized shrooms and crushed Nico wafers. We even cooked up a homemade extract of weed plastic bottle vodka, and honey. Kid stuff. The two of us searching for that path through to our fairy tale ending. I shifted restlessly, watching from a spot just behind Amber's chair as she taped shut the end of yet another straw, 
added the Ritalin I had scored, and then poured in my favorite version of her sugar chasers. Sour Patch Kid remnants she'd saved from a grocery store candy run the week before. The kick at the end was my name for that sweet acidic tingle. A taste like cotton candy rage coating the back of my throat as we fucked. I reached out and touched the nape of Amber's neck, frowning as her shoulders stiffened. This basement stuff was getting old. Just five more minutes, Amber muttered. Right. I turned away from Amber on her latest soon-to-fail experiment, kicking a can opener left at the bottom of the basement stairs. It made a satisfying clatter as it skidded across the floor. My sneakers scuffled out my progress as I followed the can opener toward the dimness of the far wall. No going back there. You promise, Larry, Amber said, still not looking at me. Okay, I said, but I didn't stop. Amber's game was going nowhere. It was my turn at Spirit Guide. I pulled the cord of a nearby light and leaned in for a closer look. All I could see were metal shelves set across the length of the cinder block wall. Each shelf was filled with rows of dusty cans the size and shape of canned tomatoes, but copper-colored with thick lead seams. Some of the cans had mineral bleeds of blue and turquoise. A few still had partial labels, more than half worn off. I grabbed a can. Already its coppery weight felt so much better than any candy-coated pixie stick. On the ragged bit of label, I could make out the word hospital in bold black letters, and higher up, typed in fainter print, was a name. Maisel. Amber, check this out. You fucking promised. For once, Amber was looking straight at me. Explain why again, I said, striding back with the Maisel can in my hand. Dad left them here. When they closed the hospital, they didn't even bury their ghosts, just left behind all that ash. He was the only one who cared. Well, knew how to use them, she amended. The light bulb above Amber drew strange shadows across her face. Still, there was something funny about her expression. Sadness, maybe? Anger? Euphoria, as well. The girl was ready to burst with it. Looks like he already opened some of them. I grabbed Amber's can opener and gave the Maisel can a quick shake. Even before I cracked it open, I could feel the ashes inside, just waiting for the two of us to say hello. What's the worst that could happen? I said, grinning. Amber stared at me, but didn't answer. Despite Amber's rules, turns out swallowing ashes works just fine. No snorting necessary. Ghosts really aren't all that fussy. The first time, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Amber, though, her hands trembled as she held the red and white straw to her lips. Old souls take me away, she mumbled, and then tilted her head back, swallowing the contents down in one long slide. She didn't even bother with a sugar chaser. Almost immediately, her face seemed to harden. Her skin flushed a bloody red, her lips pinched and cracking. When she spoke, her eyes looked far too dark. Your turn, dearest. The laugh that followed was a gritty, rough sound. Nothing like my amber. I sucked in my own strawful. It was like being rinsed clean, my own thoughts tossed aside as I slipped into someone else's groove. Forget indulging in her sad sack games. Maisel and I had another agenda. Amber didn't look angry anymore, and she didn't look scared. Her entire torso trembled, as though under the thrall of some kind of palsy. She stood in the middle of that damp basement, the musty scent of mold filling her nostrils as her eyes rolled and her cracked lips bled. Meanwhile, my own body was getting warmer, burning up. No shakes, though, no spirit visions either. Just heat, as though the energy from Amber's shaking body was combusting me from inside out. My hands reached for her, 
tearing at her t-shirt, her jeans, at that thin piece of cotton between her legs. Don't worry, baby, Maisel said, using Amber's voice. I still like to fuck. Maisel, it turned out, was good at transporting things, one piece at a time. He wasn't the only one, but Maisel was the first. A fragment of amber traveled through to the other side with our very first hit of ash. Fairy tale transformation, ragged piece by ragged piece. Amber, I leaned toward her, brushing the hair away from her face. Even in the dim morning light, I could see the bruises along her neck. My own body was no better. Nail gouges across my lower back, crusted and stiff, across my cheeks as well. Don't, Amber said, wiping a thin coating of ash from her lips. Sunstone, a voice called from the top of the stairs. Are you down there? Footsteps followed, and then the click of an overhead light. Amber's mom kept her eyes on the desk and the three open cans, rather than her own blood and bruised selves. I told you they could help. Sometimes, they haven't taken you anywhere, Amber managed to shoot back. They will, of course they will. It was your dad's fault. He's the one who told them to keep me out. Mrs. Destros glanced our way, not quite catching our eyes then turned and headed back toward the stairs. She always was a burnout, Amber whispered. And then, just like that, Amber and I started laughing. Maisel, too, his voice ice cold as it exited my throat and lungs. The other ghosts joined in, Josephina with her blood-red scream, and little Wallace. Only a boy, Wallace, stayed mostly silent, just wanting to draw more of those black cartoon elephants on the basement floor. It was a matter of moments and a two-dollar can opener, and then Amber was taping another paper straw, shaking out another bit of ash onto the water-stained desk. Maybe this time they'll take me all the way through, she said, always the believer, her magic fairy tale ending just one ashy line away. Me? I was too busy reaching for her naked and bruised body to even notice. Outsiders think of Portland or maybe Salem as the heart of Oregon, but the truth is it's the empty stretches that hold our state's deepest secrets. Oregon's fairy tales are dry and brutal, scattered with dust. I wasn't the only one. Most people miss the important things. Few have even heard of Oregon's sunstone, one of those seemingly worthless gems that people think are best left below the ground. Amber's mom wasn't entirely wrong. Shine them up just right, and the copper platelets in those sunstones look just exactly like the sunset flax in Amber's eyes. Don't know how I missed it. The girl was a goddess, even before she finished traveling through. And me... I've lived in Oregon long enough to finally learn some of her secret truths. Drive those vacant mid-state miles, and eventually you'll find her. You'll find them all. Josephina, Maisel, even sweet little Wallace. Amber's copper eyes are shining out from each of those unwanted Oregon rocks. Waiting. Perhaps one day, if I drive long enough... I'll find the way through. Perhaps Amber is trying, even now, trying to show me the way to her secret path. And welcome back. Julie said this about this story. I wrote it in part as a reaction to David Mysell's photographic series, The Library of Dust. The photographs were taken at the former Oregon State Hospital and included some amazing close-ups of oxidizing copper canisters. It turns out these canisters contained 
the unclaimed remains of former Oregon State Hospital residents. Even after the hospital was closed for many years, the canisters were left to moulder on shelves while the building crumbled around them. These people were truly abandoned and forgotten. Thankfully, since the original photography exhibit, things have changed. In 2014, the Oregon State Hospital Cremains Memorial opened on the grounds of the old hospital to honour and hold the ashes of former patients of the hospital and other Oregon institutions who were cremated from 1913 to 1971. A link to this will be in the show notes. In no way is my story meant to be a direct representation of the people who lived and died unclaimed at the Oregon State Hospital. Rather for me, David Mysell's photographs were an opening into a different but thematically related story about abandonment, transformation and the possibility of peace. Now folks, this one reminded me a little, just a little, of Tim Powers' novel Expiration Date, which featured a shed load of weird people trying to snort ghosts. Man, I read that story a long time ago, like 20 years ago. But how about you? Ring any bells? What did you think of this story? Please come and join the conversation at forum.escapeartists.net and let us know. And speaking of story conversations, let's look at what people said about episode 376, Ink, by Sandra M. O'Dell. It was narrated to you by Sean D. Sorrentino. Hey, lots of good comments for this one. Bounce Swoosh said, with effective brevity, Love, love, love. Maxie Lou said, I've listened to this story twice now and have it downloaded into the permanent file on my phone so I can take it with me and listen again. I love it. I absolutely love it. I love that the POV character is a trans man and the only other character is a trans woman. I love the idea of tattoos being able to literally change your life. Fenric said, this is a really effective piece. Sandra did a great job here by never letting the message overwhelm the storytelling. The pathos provided to Tiger was some really nice craftsmanship. And Fire Turtle said, This is one of my favourite podcast episodes of all time. I can't precisely put my finger on why. Perhaps because enclosed within the rather mundane location of a tattooist's shop there was transformation sacrifice, pain, rebirth, and longing. Perhaps because there was so much pain. Tiger's pain, the pain of the tattoo, the pain of its removal, the pain of a mismatched exterior and interior existence. No aspect of the magic wielded was without a real physical and emotional cost, which was incredibly refreshing and real. I like positive outcomes as much as the next gal, But easy solutions and easy power are frustrating and unfulfilling. There really were a lot of comments on this one about the story itself and tattoos in general. Jump on over to forum.escapeartists.net and see for yourself. Now look, you don't have to be a member to just read the comments. But if you want to join the conversation, which we'd love for you to do, registration is easy. That was our show for this week. On behalf of everyone at Podcastle, including our hard-working associate editors Sarah Goldman, Khalida Muhammad Ali, Arunjiwa and Jennifer Albert, thanks for stopping by and listening to the story. We'll be back next week with another. Until then, this is your host, Graham Dunlop. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated. It's released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like, but please don't change or sell it. 
Our theme music is by Shiva and Exile. To find out more about them, check out their website at shiva-in-exile.de. Salman Rushdie said, Now I know what a ghost is. Unfinished business, that's what. cherished and long felt desire. Let the might of your compassion arise to bring a quick end to the flowing stream of the blood and tears 